0: Despite there being an imbalance in power between ordinary men and women for thousands of years, up until the fourth century AD, priestesses were essential to religion and therefore central to life. Humanity has not always been sexist and, uh, there was mutual respect. And I'm, I'm grateful and optimistic that we are working our way back to that mutual love, respect and partnership. In today's busy world how can we find the inspiration knowledge and energy to live a healthy and empowered life if we balance and harmonize our mind exercise our body live according to the laws of nature and connect to spirit can we find a way to heal become our authentic self and live our purpose with love I am your hostess Amy Fournier, and welcome back to awakening Aphrodite Hey, I'm here with my friend, Ross Newkirk, and I know you've heard about his amazing core harmonizer because I talk about it all the time. And if you come over my house, you, like everyone else, will comment on, oh my God, what is that thing? It's so beautiful. I feel so calm and peaceful. Well, we're talking about crystals today and why they're important, why they're not all created the same. Ross, what did you want to share with us about the uniqueness of the Vogel cut crystal?
1: Well, the uh, the Vogel cut crystal is actually uh, an amazing... Um, crystal in that it's specific cut, uh, it's a double terminated crystal pointed on both ends. um, And uh, it allows for the amplification of uh, thought and intention and energy. And we actually utilize, um, we first started utilizing uh, the Vogel cut crystal in our technologies. Our nonprofit up in Western Massachusetts called the Lightfield Foundation um, has an amazing piece of technology in there that people lay in. um, uh, That's uh, um, a sphere, uh, uh, Merkaba and a cube that you lay in, and we use uh, Vogel cut crystals in that as well as in the core harmonizer and our cohere meditation mat and quantum flow unit so we actually first started utilizing these um Crystals in our technologies, and then started offering them as well to uh, to people um, for their own work. Energy healers love using uh, Vogel cut crystals, as they can be used for inputting energy uh, into you know a client and and situation, but also extracting as well. They actually resonate and vibrate um, uh, with the frequency of water, and being that we're mostly made up of water, they're uh, the wonderful wonderful tool for that such a
0: precision cut they, they, I can't believe they're handmade they're just like uh, mathematically, geometrically perfect, super powerful that's why I'm so grateful that I found Ross and his team and his beautiful company that makes these tools available to us and at discount. You guys, you can get yours at a discount on my website under the recommended products page. Just go down, you'll see the Vogel Cut Crystals. You can learn all about them. And don't forget, check out episode 105 if you want to learn even more. But when you're checking out, enter discount code TV 10 and you will save 10%. Welcome back to Awakening Aphrodite. This show is about helping you to be healthy and fit in mind, body, and spirit, as well as harmonize your masculine and feminine energy, tap into your intuition, your true source of power, and awaken your authentic self. My name is Amy Fournier, and I'm thrilled to have you here with me today because today's Fast Friday is a little extra bonus episode that we put out every other week. You guys, in addition to our regular Tuesday morning episodes, and they're just little blurbs from me that I come across something that inspires me, or that I think is interesting, or educational, or helpful, or fun, or whatever. And we just like to share it with you because God knows we all need a little bit of extra support and motivation and encouragement sometimes, right? Well, today's show is going to be about. The ancient priestesshood. We're going to learn a little bit about the spiritual history of women because I don't know about you, but I grew up Catholic and I was taught certain things about religion, spirituality, gender and God and, uh, nature and all these different things that, well, let's just say it was a certain point of view. And in my studies, I cannot believe how much that I have found of Well, you know the saying, history is his story, H-I-S, history, his story. And there's a complete void of feminine spirituality, feminine authority, feminine intuitiveness, feminine uh, participation, feminine respect in a lot of these religions. And I'm here to tell you that it just wasn't so back in the day. This is a recent thing, sadly so. Ancient cultures, just even a couple of hundred years ago, not even thousands of years, but just even a couple of hundred years, they all revered the feminine, the women in the society as valuable. And in many of them, get ready for this, they were actually the ones bringing in the spiritual life and directing the spiritual life of the society. They were the ones that had the direct downloads. They were the priestesses, as in they were the leaders. It wasn't the men. And look, it's not that there's anything wrong with the men. They weren't capable or any, they were incompetent. It's nothing like that. We love men. I say that all the time. This is about just respecting and honoring our differences, and our strengths, so we can all work better together synergistically. If we all tap into our strengths and harmonize out of love and respect, how powerful would we be, right? So, back in ancient societies, the females, the women were very prominent in the culture, in the religions, and in the spiritual direction of the community. Today, I'm going to share with you uh, from a wonderful book called The Way of the Priestess. The Way of the Priestess by Sarah Coxon, who's a PhD. And she writes, in and around the Mediterranean, although women in general were taught to know their place, there were women who chose to defy the status quo. None were more famous than the poetess Sappho. Born in the 6th century BC to an aristocratic family on the Greek islands of Lesbos, Sappho was an icon in the ancient world, and her legacy has endured even to this day. Her poetry speaks about the ecstasy of love and deep sensuality. In particular, she speaks of the love between women, which is why, now get this, you probably were like, hmm, Lesbos, well, that's right. We actually got the word lesbian from her name, which was her home on the island of Lesbos. So lesbian comes from this priestess. Sappho is an enigma of the ancient world, particularly because what remains of her poetry is fragmentary. Much of it, unfortunately, was destroyed in later centuries by the Christian church for being salacious. I mean, the Christian Church destroyed everything. I actually was just reading something a little side note here. Um, I think it was in the book. I've got so many books going all at once right now. I'm pretty sure it was in the book uh the Immortality Key, which is a friggin fascinating book, by the way, and it really will uh, uh get you started learning about uh how women were completely. Removed from spirituality. But that book actually talks about scholars and historians now view only 1% of the recorded history of theology and religions is actually retained, meaning we lost, they're approximating 99% of all the records of history of other cultures, of their religious and spiritual practices were basically destroyed. On purpose, by well, I hate to say it, but most of it was Catholicism coming through and calling everybody pagans, and that we all had to convert to their beliefs. And they destroyed everything. They destroyed temples. They destroyed. They destroyed. They tur- they they burnt down whole temples with books and libraries, burnt them to the ground. Museums, statues, all records. Not to mention all the people they murdered. So they just did their best to completely eradicate and wipe off all this knowledge, all this wisdom, all these healing modalities were destroyed and get this irony of ironies in the name of God, in the name of religion, claiming that this is what God wanted. I don't know. That's you can make up your own decision on that, but it's a crazy statistic, isn't it? To think that the, what we know of quote unquote history is only 1% of what actually happened. I mean, how well would you be able to make a decision if 99% of the relative facts were omitted? That's something to think about. Anyway, back to Sappho. So she is an enigma because a lot of her poetry is missing, as I mentioned. And also because despite there being no overwhelming evidence, many believe that she was, in fact, a priestess. Indeed, many of her poems pay homage to the pagan goddess, guess who, Aphrodite. Although we don't know for sure that Sappho was a priestess, history tells us of other female poets who were openly practicing priestesshood. Her name was Enduwana, and I might not be saying that right, forgive me, I'm doing my best, but she was one of the first recorded female writers, and one of the first recorded writers, period, in the history of the world. Isn't that crazy? She was the daughter of King Saragon, and he gave her the position of high priestess as a political move to maintain power in the region. Pretty savvy, huh? As priestess, though, she composed many hymns of praise to the goddess Ishtar. In her moving poetry, she contemplates the formidable power of the warrior goddess Ishtar and what it is to be female. As the centuries marched on and as women's power in ancient society decreased, priesthood became a doorway to increased status and civil rights. In ancient Greece, at around the 8th century BC, the most famous position of priestesshood was the Oracle of Delphi, known as the Pythia. High priestesses of the god Apollo The Pythia's role in ancient society was to dispense advice and wisdom to people from all walks of life. Ordinary people would consult her for commentary on matters related to daily civilian life. So basically, I'll paint a picture for you. What these people would do is they would take pilgrimages. Yes, that means walk like through the desert and whatnot. To these temples, the goddess temples, and they would give offerings and sacrifice. And they would go in front of the priestesses and tell them basically about their problem or ask their question. And the priestess, who has been trained and initiated and somehow very much tapped into that particular goddess, would then tap into that frequency and somehow elicit a response, guidance, or uh, premonition, prophecy, or whatever. So political leaders would consult her about the state of affairs, as they would do all female oracles. You've heard me say before, it's not a coincidence that the vast majority of oracles were female. And all the political leaders, even uh, Caesar Augustus and, and um, some of the others that are escaping me right now, Marcus Aurelius, they all had a female oracles to help them in guiding their policies and their politics and leading the people. So in these roles, the women had immense influence and power. And in a world dominated by men, it's ironic to reflect that the most powerful person in the ancient world was actually a woman. Her wisdom was thought to be channeled from the god Apollo. And as such, Pythia could say whatever she wanted without consequence. Priestesshood endured throughout the centuries. In ancient Rome, from the 7th century BC onward, the sacred flame of the city was kept burning by a group of priestesses known as the Vestal Virgins. This is where we get the name Vestal Virgins from priestesses of Vesta, who was the goddess of the home and the hearth. They were selected during childhood, and they were usually from an aristocratic background. The duty of these priestesses was to keep the sacred fire of Rome burning an immensely prestigious honor. It was believed that if the fire went out, Rome would meet its demise. They were also to stay chast during their 30 years of service and wore elaborate wedding gowns, signifying their union to Rome itself. In return, the vessels were given almost goddess-like status and were free from the societal obligation to marry and bear children. Their situation wasn't empowering in the true sense of the word, though. Being a Vestal wasn't easy, and young girls were primed for this role before they had a real say in their lives. In times of crisis, Vestals were used as scapegoats. Their chastity would be questioned, and their alleged crimes punished. So basically what this is saying is, because all these very powerful men and leaders would consult with these oracles and priestesses, if say something went wrong, or the, I don't know, they had a famine or something, they would then blame the priestess that they gave them bad advice, and it must be because oh, you schle- you you slept with the with the uh, goat herder boy, and now you're uh, tainted, So you gave me bad advice; it's your fault. <laughs> so these women couldn't win. I mean, how do you defend yourself against that, right? Rome was essentially policing the bodies of these women by forcing them to refrain from sexual activity and conditioning them to believe that, if they were to stray, that they were committing treason against Rome itself. If a Vestal did succumb to her natural impulses, there was no mercy. In 4803 BC, Opia, a Vestal, was found guilty of allegedly having sexual relations. She was entombed alive, condemned to experience a lonely, terrifying death. That means, hello, she was buried alive. Oh my goodness. The Vestal Virgins represent a state's desire to have power over its women through religion. These women did not have true autonomy over their lives. Nope. They were slaves to the system. So how ironic, right? Out in public, they were they were revered as, like, like it said, semi-goddess status and, like, wow, pretty high up when it comes to uh, a status of a woman's uh, ability. However, they were basically slaves. Yes, as priestesses, they were given social status and prestige above what ordinary women had. And, yes, they could own property. They could vote. They were entrusted to important state documents, and once they retired from the priestesshood, they continued to benefit from elevated social status. Despite what it cost them, these women were immensely respected. And remember, they were still slaves to the whole system, and God forbid they make a wrong prediction or something. They were central to religious ceremony, and they simultaneously kept the fire of Rome burning for nearly 1,000 years and immortalized themselves in the pages of history. So, yes, these women, obviously the point here is they were very, very inherent part of the fabric of the society. And very, very powerful, and they directed political decisions. You want to think it now, but priestesshood also played a huge role in the spread of early Christianity. Get this, in 50 AD, Christianity was but a small group of people who branched off from traditional Judaism. Led by Paul in what is now modern-day Turkey, they had a mission to spread Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. Ironically, for a faith that's now so patriarchal in its structure, during its infancy, it was women who were spreading the message of Christ. In fact, during the first few centuries AD, roughly half of the new churches were founded by women. I don't know, but I was never taught this, were you? This was the time during which to be a Christian in Rome was to be a criminal. And still, women felt called to be part and to teach this radical new faith. So there you go. There's a true warrior goddess, someone who is putting her feet where her values are and her money where her mouth is and putting it all on the line for what she believes. Got to respect that. That's a true heroine. The initial message back then of Christianity was that the world was ending soon, and this opened up huge opportunities for women. Their primal social responsibility as women was to bear children, but now there was no need. As a consequence, they chose to take a much more active role in the early Christian church. It's hard to believe, given the way the Catholic church is structured today, but the first few centuries of Christianity, women led worship and shared the teachings of Christ. And don't even get me started about Mary Magdalene, because we know that she was like a partner with Jesus Christ. She wasn't whatever is God only knows what the church is saying that she was. I mean, there's some sects that say she was a prostitute for God's sake. And we know that she was like his, his, his partner. And she had a whole, gospel that was removed from the Bible. And it wasn't the only gospel removed from the Bible. That's another show. (laughs) Anyway, we can see very clearly as as in the archaeology, in the catacombs of Priscilla in Rome, painted figures on the walls clearly depict ordained priestesses and women in positions of religious leadership. It's right there for you to see. In the early Christian church, women were handmaidens of God and as a consequence held positions of power and authority. But all this changed in the 4th century AD because of one man, Augustine of Hippo, born in a Roman province of Algeria. According to his own biography, he had a colorful youth, let's just say, consorting with prostitutes and concubines. but. Later, he turned over a new leaf and became a bishop of the Christian church. It was Augustine who promoted the concept of original sin. The idea that sin of humanity originated from the moment Eve persuaded Adam Adam to eat the forbidden apple, which then prompted God to kick them both the heck out of the Garden of Eden. So, thanks a lot, Eve. You're the fault for the downfall of all of humanity. (laughs) <laughs> That's, that was my little editorial comment. Augustine very much held women responsible for bringing original sin to the world and for being a continuing source of seduction. <laughs> I mean, this is almost comical, right? Wow, this is, wow. I can't even believe this was the basis for so much religion. He also taught that pleasurable sex was despicable and dirty. What a guy. (laughs) Augustine's anti-women narrative was the straw that broke the camel's back for women's role with the the Christian church. In the 4th century, it was decreed that women could no longer be priestesses. That's it. Soon after, all pagan worship was outlawed and the temples to the gods and goddesses of old were demolished. That means all their wisdom, all their healing practices, all their initiations, all their evolutionary findings gone, trashed, burned to the ground, never to be, to be passed on and, and built from and benefited by future generations, including us. As a consequence, the feminine and the role of women in religious worship were completely obliterated. Christianity had initially opened up portals to women to embody their priestesshood and live their divine purpose, but within a few centuries, this had been stripped away. And I'll add, it's never been added back since. (laughs) We think we're so modern and and sophisticated, but mm, nope. (laughs) Despite there being an imbalance in power between ordinary men and women for thousands of years, up until the 4th century AD, Priestesses were essential to religion and therefore central to life because their lives revolved around their religion. It was a, it was a structural part of their culture. In priestesshood, these women had found a way to reclaim their power and worth. So there you go. There's a little, uh, history lesson for you. I can pretty much guarantee you've probably never heard that before in school. That's for sure. You sure did not learn it in Sunday school. And yep, I went to Sunday school. Anyway, something to consider. You know, when you do a little deeper digging, you can find out a lot of stuff that wasn't available on the surface. It's just a matter of taking the time and energy to find out. I don't know about you, but I like to know the truth. I like to know what really happened. And, um, I don't believe everything I'm told. I like to do my own research. You know what they say: trust yet verify. So that's the way of the priestess. Give you a little history and uh, hopefully a little bit of confidence in your ability and uh, how humanity has not always been sexist, <laughs> basically. And uh, there was mutual respect, and I'm I'm grateful and optimistic that we are working our way back to that mutual love, respect, and partnership. I hope you enjoyed the show today. If you want to support me, you know what to do. Leave a review (laughs) and go ahead and share it with a friend. We'll see you next time. Would you like to support my mission to help empower people all over the world to be all of who they truly are? If so, please subscribe to the show, leave a review on iTunes, and share it with a friend. And if you're looking to take immediate action to align your energy and optimize your health, visit amyfornier.com. Thanks for listening to Awakening Aphrodite. Let's awaken her together in you. I'm your hostess Amy Fournier, and I already can't wait to be with you again and for you to hear what I have planned for the next show. Thanks for listening to Awakening Aphrodite with Amy Fournier. To learn more about Amy, check out her website, amyfournier.com. That's A-M-Y-F-O-U-R-N-I-E-R.com. You can also check out Amy's live and on-demand virtual fitness and yoga classes and sign up for her newsletter to receive a free mini ebook of three of her top tips for making holistic health a lifestyle. Again, that's amyfournier.com and get your ebook sent to your email immediately. Connect with Amy on the daily on Instagram at FitAmyTV, F-I-T-A-M-Y TV, and watch many of the podcast episodes and subtopic clips on her YouTube channel, which is also FitAmyTV. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time on Awakening Aphrodite.